Hi, I'm George Gale, and this is The Next Move, where we're talking with organizers about the craft of organizing. Today, my guest is Doran Schrantz. At the end of the day, the issue is power. It's not healthcare, housing, or climate. It's power. And to win on the issues, the fundamental thing we got to change is who has it. People power, money power, political power, and cultural power. For more than two decades, Doran Schrantz has been squarely focused on the project of building power with lots of other people through organizing. She's dedicated a huge chunk of her life to doing this with one organization, Isaiah, a Minnesota faith-based organization that she directs. She also leads Faith in Minnesota, a political home for people of faith in the state. When did you become an organizer? Yeah. Not like when did you get your first organizing job? But like, when do you feel like you're like, oh, I think I'm actually an organizer? That's a great question. I learned about organizing and began to think I might want to be an organizer when I was living in Chicago uh, in the late 90s. But I learned about organizing when I, so I lived in Logan Square. I don't mm. know if you, you, yeah. you must know Logan sure. Square. So I yeah. lived in Logan Square and there was this coffee shop that was across the street from my apartment. And I was in there ranting about something political. And this guy came up to me and he said, hey, I'd like to do a one-to-one with you. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, I have a boyfriend. You know, I've actually lived here. I live with my boyfriend. So he was like, no, 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 no. I'm an organizer with the Logan Square Neighborhood Association. Oh, wow. Okay, sure. So I I was like, this is so interesting. So I actually met with him. And then at the same time, I was working in theater. And at the time, I think I was trying to turn theater into organizing. We did this thing where we like interviewed people who were like political asylees mm. with the Kohler Center for Human Rights. And then we built this night of story. T- and then I was, I remember thinking like, will this change power? Mm. And I was really, really invested in the idea of who had power. Hmm. Where I grew up in Iowa, I grew up in a town called Ottumwa which was very class divided. Hmm. Um, We had meatpacking. And most of the folks where I went to elementary school, like their dads worked at Hormel. And it was this brutal year long strike. I remember people losing their jobs. I mean, I really grew up with that consciousness of just like what happened in the farm crisis, what happened to the meatpackers, what happened to my town as a result of that. It was basically boarded up by the mid eighties. Like there was no downtown. Right. By the time I was in high school, it was meth. You know, it was like a really despairing experience. So this question about power really mattered to me because part of what I thought about was, is there some other way to change the story? Why did it happen that way? So when I met somebody who did organizing and then I started reading about it, there was like a couple of things that were most compelling to me. So one was, this is an explicit conversation about power. Mm-hmm. Who has it? How do you get it? It also was super practical. Right. It was like, no, there are actually like steps you can take to get more power. And then secondly, I was so moved myself around the nature of the relationship at the center of community Mm. organizing. So it's not that we have power to go influence something or I personally have power or you have power by knowledge and then you go advocate for somebody else. It was like, no, we together. It's like, instead of a gradient downward, it's a complete with power with. 
And I thought that's what's going to save democracy. Mm. (laughs) It's like, you know, my 27 year old self was like, it's that it's the nature of that relationship of like public relationship, people taking real steps to build power that not having enough power is the problem. It's all about not knowing enough or, you know, not being smart enough. It's there's not enough democracy and people don't have enough power. And if people had more power, maybe, maybe the story would be different. Who were some early people that broke it down for you? There was a man named Reverend Emmett Mosley, mm-hmm. who my first job in Chicago, I came in as kind of like a young I want to organize, you know, and he mm-hmm. came in as somebody who had a bunch of experience organizing, particularly faith-based and neighborhood-based organizing. And he and I really deeply related. And I think partially because I was so hungry and so interested, he really spent mm-hmm. a lot of time with me. He drove me out to Gary, Indiana to talk about their campaign that they had done to try to like literally save the post office because of all the, you know, it was... right. He took me to a public meeting. He had all kinds of conversations with me about the politics and power dynamics of South Chicago and Chicago and black and white communities, his involvement in the Harold Washington campaign, like that the sort of era of that time in Chicago with Harold Washington. I just still remember like driving in his car, you know, like you go to some church someplace, you're going to some community hall and it's like so granular and I'm so scared. (laughs) Oh, yes. talking me through then you do the meeting and then afterwards you sit in the car and he breaks down for you like all the things you did wrong you know it was like that he (laughs) was like that with me oh yeah how stupid i was about race or about this or i did but but also but always always so so curious so curious Mm. about me so so invested i felt like i could make a mistake or i could you know, and, and that I could learn. He was very encouraging, mm-hmm. but it really, the seriousness of the craft, you know, like what he, how he took the craft and how yeah. seriously he took developing an organizer was really instilled in me. So I, I owe a lot to Reverend Emma Mosley in Chicago. And then there was a woman who I love. I haven't talked to her in years. Her name was Kathy Duvall. She did. She was totally hardcore in kind of like the left of labor in Chicago she like schooled the shit out of me on labor and old school labor and like what was labor really about and she would yell at me because i'd be like yeah but do you always have to have a union and she was like doran democracy in the workplace so she was amazing i spent a lot of time with her and asked her a lot of questions and she also really invested in me and it was from there that i actually came to isaiah where i work now i've been here mm-hmm. for a very long time but I came because I was I was very intentionally looking for a place where I could apprentice. So mm. I kind of thought about organizing like, this is very serious. The level of seriousness that I must take my relationship with myself mm-hmm. as a political person mm-hmm. and the care I need to be equipped to take with relationships with other people around the stakes of a question about power where people are going to risk things. They'll risk themselves. They'll risk their relationships. They'll risk real things like the men in my town risked everything to go on strike mm-hmm. at Hormel. Yep. That's like serious business. And I 
want to take it deadly seriously. And Isaiah had a reputation even back at that time of like, they really take developing organizers very seriously. So it was Pamela Twist, Jay Schmidt, Paul Marincel, and I did one-on-ones with them and they offered me a six month internship. I was definitely going to go back to Chicago after those six months. (laughs) And it's been 17 years. (laughs) What was it about you that was hungry? I mean, not everybody wants to apprentice at that level. I think for me, part of the craft of organizing is that when people become political, like you become that thing, it's not something you are, it's something you become. Mm -hmm. I'm a mix of flaws and undigested experiences and pain and Mm -hmm. suffering and fears and insecurities and desires. And what does it mean to form that into being a public or political person? And some of that is about getting clear about your own, your own story. Yeah. So, you know, the context of the town that I grew up in had this landscape. It's a landscape of despair and nothing's possible. Mm-hmm. And then in my own house, my parents struggled with substance abuse, including opioids. Mm. And my dad was married before he married my mother. So there was eight kids in total kind of in the mix. There was a lot of pain from that previous marriage and divorce. My mom had been to Vietnam in order to pay for school. She ended up on the front lines in Vietnam, actually doing like frontline battlefront civilian casualty. So the things that she witnessed and experienced are pretty horrific. So she was had post-traumatic stress disorder. So there was a kind of undigested pain um, in my household that like internalized as shame, which I actually think is true for a lot of white families. I'm putting yeah. that in quotes. Yeah. And the experience I had with my parents' struggles and my struggles in relationship with them was one of exile. So we didn't fit in anywhere. And like people wouldn't let their kids play with us because <laughs> you know? my parents were real messy. Mm. And then my experience in that whole context was one of wanting to escape. And then secondly, I simply felt invisible. Like I just, there was just so much going on in my family and I was, I was neglected. Mm. So as I came into adulthood, I had deep empathy for people not being seen. And the thing is, I wanted to be seen right? and was scared to be public. Mm -hmm. So there was like a hunger I had myself for becoming political, becoming public, like Hmm. knowing who I was wrestling with this question about power, about being public, about being political, about having agency, not being just smothered by the circumstances that you live in. And I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know if I believed in myself. I had like, I had a lot of, you know, fear and stuff. (laughs) And when I started thinking about what it meant to be with people, what I realized is I want to be on this path. Mm -hmm. It's not, I'm not doing this for somebody else. Right. I'm angry. I've suffered. I know what it feels like to not have power. I know what it feels like to be lost. I want to learn what it feels like 
to reclaim my agency in life. And that has something to do with power. And it has something to do with the way that I relate to other people. Like the, the other people and this public relationship, like building that I'm not outside of it, I'm in it and I'm doing it with other people. And when I learn how to do it, and I'm actually deeply asking those questions of myself, then I'm going to have an, enough capacity to invite other people into that same path. You don't develop that clarity, right? Overnight of your story no. and what happened and like how in organizing do we help people understand their story? Um, what do we do? How does that work? So, cause we all experience in different ways. And if you're black or you're brown or you're an immigrant or you're a woman or you're a man or you're working class or middle class or upper class, it's all situated differently. I want to acknowledge that that is a thousand percent true. Yeah. That being said, there are some building blocks about how a human who has experienced powerlessness comes into relationship with that and crosses a bridge into a path of like, becoming more agentic. Like I, I want to change this and I can, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's a giant thing. That's a giant thing to decide is possible to decide. It's like an act of faith. It's like, it's a, it's a journey. It's scary. It's all, it's exhilarating. It's all those things. But a huge part of what gets people to the place where they might want to cross that bridge to become public or do something in the world or be a leader as we, in our lexicon is connecting their story, their private pain that's been made private mm-hmm. and going public with it. That it's actually, it's a communal problem. It's not just an individualized problem, which is itself a liberating experience. And so the questions, you know, I think that, like a lot of you, if you sat in a one-on-one with a, with an organizer, in all kinds of different traditions of organizing, a lot of what's going to happen is you're going to have somebody asking a lot of why. Mm-hmm. But where do you think that comes from? When did you learn that? You don't skip over the clues that they give you about things that have caused pain. You mm-hmm. actually, because people leave breadcrumbs for you. Yeah. And you open the door instead of walk by it. And yeah. it's like, my drive to be public or to lead is deeply connected to meaning I make about my experience. But we need space and time and coaching and people to help us draw those connections and actually overcome shame, overcome fear, overcome insecurity. That's actually where the transformative part, I think, of organizing happens is in that conversation. Over and over and over again, it's not one conversation, you know? Exactly. I wish it was that easy. Yeah. (laughs) I've been thinking about how, like what you described in a one-on-one, like we steer people towards some uncomfortable stuff and also done well. I think people like start to recognize what a gift we've brought by asking those why questions. Right. Well, I got to ask this. What were some like organizing teachings you learned in your early days at Isaiah that you're like, keep coming back to what happened for me in the first like three months is I was asked to do 15 one-on-ones a week in three different inner ring suburban congregations. The first challenge was like, 
I have to actually pick up the phone and cold call people. And I just have to do it every day and then try to convince these people to meet with me for like coffee or at the church or whatever. And then I was supposed to write up what did I learn about this person in the conversation? Like it was a very kind of rigorous template. And then what did I learn about myself? What risks did I take? What didn't I do? And so I took that pretty seriously and I, I wrote up the reports. And then I would meet with two senior organizers once a week for two hours where they had read every single report that I wrote. And then they would come at me. And it wasn't mean. I don't mean come at me like mean, like really go there, like really unpack. Like, why yeah. did I say this? Or what did I think about that? Or why do I think that I avoided this part instead of that one? Or why was my tendency to like keep having like abstract political conversations instead of learning more about their story? Was I curious about other people? Was I what, and like, was I afraid? Mm -hmm. So it was those kinds of conversations. And I remember like early on, there was a moment where I had met with this woman and she was a little um, do-goodery. She was like a staff person at the church and she was do-goodery and kind of looked down on people. Like from my analysis, I was like, she thinks she's helping people. And she really looks down on them. So I wrote this whole thing that was kind of very sort of critiquing her and also trying to show how insightful I was. And <laughs> you're laughing. Yeah. Um, so I think it was Pamela. <laughs> so I think she said something to me like, so do you just think you're better than other people? Like, you didn't find out anything about this person. All you did was judge them. And therefore that whole conversation was about you and not about that person. And I was flabbergasted, horrified, and sort of knew it was true. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know? Oh. Knew it was true. I just remember things like that where it was like, oh, I can't do my job if I'm spending all my time judging other people. Right. That job is to organize them not to judge them or figure out if they're right or if they agree with me or, you know, if they're good. My job is not to figure out if they're good. Right. And that is such a powerful and searing lesson. Yeah. And I think really essential for good organizing. Like as you become a good organizer, like you just don't, that's just like you would never sit across from a person the way that I at that time sat across from that woman. Yeah. Another moment was, I sometimes tell this to new organizers, there was a woman I met with, she was very taciturn, she was very Midwestern, I was trying to get her to open up and really talk to me. And I, I remember sitting at her kitchen table and she had one of those, like, if you're from the Midwest, do you know this? Like she had one of those plastic tablecloths that had pineapples on it. Oh yeah. And I have looked at that tablecloth my whole life. It was like sitting with my grandmother. <laughs> People I knew in Iowa, you know, where you're like, you have the fluff salad and the little smokies and the crock pot, you know, I mean, it was like that. Oh, yeah. And I remember thinking to myself, how did, how did I end up back here? Mm. I was challenged by it. I was almost like I had the instinct to run away. It's like, I'm back with the same people. I meant to leave this and now I'm back here. 
And later I was thinking about it and I thought, you know, if my commitment is to organize people, then I absolutely should be with the pineapple tablecloth. Yep. Because democracy should live here too, you know? Yep. And these are the people I should organize. So those were a couple of kind of searing moments at the beginning that I think have anchored me. They've clearly stuck with you. Yeah. What is like, because, you know, there were like five or six community organizing networks that were dominant kind of for a long time. Like, what was faith-based organizing as you were coming up? What did that mean? So it really stems from the idea that there are mediating institutions in civic life and mediating institutions really matter. So there are places where people have social capital, they gather, they have civic life. And churches are one of those places. They're incredibly, especially 20, 30, 40 years ago, incredibly important institutions. Secondly, the idea was these institutions have people in them who are organic leaders in their communities. You know, they're leaders in that, in the church. And there are things that tie those people together that are values-based. Most faith-based organizing has been multi-faith the whole time. I mean, it's so it's never been explicitly Christian, mm-hmm. although it's a lot of Christian and in particular Catholic tradition that faith-based organizing comes out of. But it was values-based and that's been an incredibly powerful thing to tap. And I actually think it was a precursor to a lot of what, what I would argue is very values-based organizing that's happening now. You know, mm-hmm. it's like there is a an ethics. There is a sense that we have to be better. And so like, whether you're talking about the civil rights movement or the black lives matter movement, or you're talking about the immigrants rights movement, all of those movements have something embedded in them that is about, there is a moral higher ground. And I think that is incredibly important to like actually fertile for constructing politics, especially in America, like uh, to have a moral vision. I mean, I think we, you know, we see manifestations of it now, like, um, you know, William Barber Mm -hmm. and the Poor People's Campaign. I actually think a lot of, you know, they would definitely see themselves as secular and definitely not Christian. But a lot of the (laughs) (laughs) youth movements we see right now are totally rooted in like a moral vision and a demand that, that all of us live up to that moral vision and an urgency around it. And I, you know, in some ways for all the kind of stodginess of some of faith-based organizing from the past, there always was this thing you could tap into that was a story, a deeper call, deeper sense of connection, and a like a drive for a moral, urgent imperative. And I really appreciated that about hmm. faith-based organizing, even though I didn't actually, I personally did not grow up in organized religion. Um, we were kicked out of the Catholic Church. <laughs> I was baptized Catholic, and then my parents were not allowed to come up to the altar in Ottawa, Iowa at the Catholic Church. So, I mean, when I said this thing about being exiled, it like literally started right there when wow. I was a, when I was in New Is yeah. that how you open your one-on-one with a priest is that story? <laughs> I actually did have lots of explicit conversations with Catholic priests about that. You know, a lot of what you're doing when you're organizing in the church-based context too is like, let's, let's explore the contradiction <laughs> between what the scriptures say and our moral call and how we act and what we're doing. What are we doing? So yeah, I've had a lot of organizing conversations with clergy and religious leaders that are about agitating around the contradiction 
and wrestling with it and struggling with it. And also recognizing, you know what, it is hard to move an institution, which is also also the thing I really loved about faith-based organizing. I mean, mm -hmm. you don't get to pick your people when you're doing that. Mm -hmm. You have an institution that you have to move. So it's a little more like work defined set or workplace organizing. You have to find the leaders. You have to have a strategy. You have to have a power analysis. You have to like think really carefully about who your champions are, who you're building a co-conspiracy with, and then really developing a set of leaders to not just like run out and do an action, but like develop a set of leaders to be like, we are going to steward our path in this institution. Mm -hmm. We're going to move this. We're going to move all thousand of these people. That is pretty sophisticated. Yep. It's hard. And kind of fun, exhausting sometimes, but kind of kind of fun. And then, you know, the other thing that's always been sort of untapped potential of faith-based, you can you can move a thousand people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you, know? you can you can move a town. Right. You could you might be able to build a relationship with somebody in the institution or even the leader of the institution yeah. and get them to show up and speak at something or right? right. Or Oh. Yeah, but but the real trick of it is not can you pluck people out of it to go be activists in your thing. Mm -hmm. The real trick of it is can you get beyond the activists in right. that place and start moving the base, you know, <laughs> of that institution. Okay, well, two questions on this: like, what are some steps that happen in moving an institution, and then yeah. What are some things you've learned, you know, and maybe that are even like kind of live, you know, in recent years around getting those different institutions, which, you know, probably don't see eye to eye on all things to work together. I mean, it's not like there's there's like a recipe book. Sure. But you do. If you're really serious about organizing an institution, this process of doing one on ones to find the leaders and a lot of faith-based organizers will tell you that when they have the first meeting with the clergy person and you always ask them, who are other people I can talk to? And they give you a list of 10 names mm -hmm. that are always the wrong 10 people. <laughs> yes. Like inevitably not the people you want to relate to because they happen to be the people on the social justice committee who are not the most powerful people in the institution. And they're not necessarily the people who can move other people. Right. The better step is to like, you're trying to get into the next ring of people and then you're identif you're starting to rebuild a team in relationship with the leadership, whether it's the parish council or the pastor or the staff to say, can you, it's, it's like a process of unlocking. Can you build enough alignment of interest that you end up unlocking it so that you have an established base in that institution? And it's a lot of relational, it's a lot of power analysis. It is, takes a long time. I mean, it's, you know, it's not quick and dirty. It's like, you know, it takes a while, but once you have locked in an institution, it is one of the most sustaining parts of an organization. It's like that church or that Islamic center is always going to deliver 200 people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, or if you need to generate 500 phone calls in St. Paul, like, you know, the 20 people that have to get aligned, you know, to be like, yeah, let's make that happen. There's now a thousand calls got made in five days. So you've described moving individuals and you know, moving institutions yeah. and definitely all of it, you know, grounded in power. Yeah. And we do this to like win things and change things. Like what's a fight you guys yes. have been in recently or in now that you're really excited about or a favorite campaign story around fighting to win something? 
So the thing that I've been most driven around in the last four or five years is can you make these kinds of organizations, meaning like base building, grassroots, really grounded in people and their development, all of that stuff, like not boutique and politically relevant. Can it drive politics? Mm-hmm. Because if we care, if, if, if the idea, which I think is really important, that multiracial democracy is ultimately the giant fight we've always been in, <laughs> right. it's like, can we build a political practice that is relevant and can wield political power? And there's so much about the electoral industrial complex that, that disincentivizes the sort of sense of political agency and power in relationship to like real people. And I think one of the problems, like one of the reasons we've ended up where we've ended up is that everything is atomizing people, turning them into consumers and people mostly have the experience that politics doesn't work. So fuck it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And fuck it gets you Trump. Right. I mean, whether it's like I am so pissed off at the system or whatever, or like I'm I'm willing to take a gamble on this asshole. (laughs) I mean, it's sort of like there are actual Mm -hmm. white supremacists and white nationalists. And then there's been both people dropping out because it doesn't really work. Like, what does it deliver? Like, I deliver my vote. And what does it do for me? Yeah. And I think that is a terrible crisis. Yeah. And it produces these bad things. It's like a vicious cycle instead of a virtuous cycle. And the vicious cycle is producing terrible, terrible things. Right. So how do we build a politics? So in the last four years, it's like we built a C4. But the real question was, can we take this thing that we have and is growing and new people are coming into it, but this thing that we have and wield it in politics in such a way that we're forcing the party, we're forcing candidates we're to, to not just that we're voting for X, Y, and V to give us stuff, but we're actually, we're actually building the politics and we're influencing the way they do politics. So we're at the center of it as people. And so Faith in Minnesota, the first kind of foray, we used, I mean, not every state can do this, but we used the precinct caucus strategy, which is built for organizing. It is built Hmm. for organizing. So how do you infiltrate it? (laughs) Well, say what that is, too. Make no assumption. Can you say what that is? So what the precinct caucus is, is a very weird arcane system where like, which, but it's kind of beautiful. You know, it's like theoretically, so Instead, a party endorsement process is such that like there's a very local unit and everybody goes to that local unit and you start the process of deciding who's the party going to endorse at this at the precinct level. Then the precinct elects people to the next level and the next level elects people to the next level. So in order to influence an endorsement, you can flood people into that caucus. You can train them to move to the next level and we can have a collective strategy through it. That's our base. Like we're, we're not loyal to the candidate. We're loyal to our base. Like we are loyal to our agenda and what we're trying to build. And we're going to leverage that to actually have a set of asks that are not just issues that are also how they do politics. So we've had asks around, like, we want you to address race head on. We think dressing race head on is what it means to fight Trump. That's how you win. We want you to focus on 
voters of color, even in a place like Minnesota, because we mm-hmm. think that's how we win. <laughs> mm-hmm. We want you to talk about a bold agenda. We want to talk about like the solutions that meet the crisis that our families are in. We think that matters. We're making people believe that this democracy can work. And if they believe in it, then they're going to keep engaging in it. But it yeah. means you got to get in that game with us. So the first foray, we had, it sounds small, but it was quite a feat. We ended up with 11% of the endorsing convention for the governor in 2018. And no one was getting that endorsement without our block of votes. So the drama was, can faith in Minnesota hold their block of votes? And nobody thought we could do it. And we absolutely did it. And we wielded that block of votes for, we negotiated, we like shaped campaigns, we made them do research. (laughs) We really put them through the paces and really shaped not just who got elected, but we shaped the entire discussion. We shaped the campaign season and our people absolutely believed that they had done that. And then that year, we actually elected a set of people of our own people to the state legislature. I did. We didn't even mean to do it, but people realized like, oh, shit, like we have power in these Senate district conventions. Maybe I'll run. (laughs) So then they ran and we endorsed a set of people that came from our base and then they won. And now those people are playing significant role in the state house. They are leading committees. They helped form this thing called the Minnesota Values Project, which is essentially a elected official power organization labor space that's really not only thinking about issues, it's thinking about what's our strategy together, what's our governing strategy which is like completely amazing. I mean, I've been doing legislative work for 15 years, you know, like this kind of political work. And we've never had this kind of relationship with the people leading the house. So who are some of them are our people? That has been so transformative in terms of, if you go back to the originating part of this conversation, do people feel like they have power and that what they do matters? So even in the era of Trump, It was so terrible. Mm -hmm. Everybody in our organization feels more powerful and knows that they made a difference. And we have more people who are more engaged. We have more super leaders, more volunteer organizers, what I really call like a real base has hundreds of volunteer organizers, you know, that was such a powerful experience for all of us and a very powerful experience for me personally. Like it's just been Mm -hmm. really really amazing, really re-inspiring about what this work can be about. And it's such a huge fight. Mm -hmm. Like how we make politics work for people is such a huge fight. That's amazing. It sounds like a just huge leap in power. Hugely. That's true too. We did good work and people recognized us, but we have a lot more power, like a lot more power, like a shocking amount more power. Yeah. Yeah. No, (laughs) which is especially amazing for, you know, and for folks that, you know, don't know like i think isaiah has long been considered one of the you know most impressive community organizing faith-based organizing institutions in the country you yeah know, pre getting into elections in a real way yes and boy are we happy that we helped elect keith ellison <laughs> yes right electing keith ellison to be attorney general in 2018 has everything to do with what happened in the george floyd verdict and so and i think people People understand that. It's not the everything. I mean, the movement made that happen. Like all kinds of things made that happen. But it sure helped to have Keith Ellison as your AG. No, exactly. I mean, I feel like you and I grew up in an organizing sector that was 
basically designed to win the best thing possible in the existing political and ideological landscape. And what I see in front of us is so different than what I used to be able to see because, you know, actually and largely because of moving into elections. Yeah, totally. So two last questions. Like what's, a, you know, organizers, we got so many organizing axiom, like what's a favorite and why? We've kind of invented some of our own organizing axioms over the years. We joke it's now a new part of the canon. So a new part of the canon is crossing the bridge from like victimhood mm. to agency. And then and that everything we're doing is about crossing that bridge to agency and that an organizer's entire existence and everything about the organization is about crossing the bridge. We have to have a bridge crossing culture everywhere. Mm. All Anytime anyone encounters any aspect of anything in the organization, is it helping them cross the bridge? And if it's not, then we have to fix it. That's so good. What is one of the first things you teach a new organizer? We've been building this sort of curriculum over the last actually four or five years. And part of it is there's an organizing boot camp that we do. And we start with, there's lots of ways to have power. You can be a lobbyist. You could be rich. You can run for office. You can do any number of things. And so th those are ways to have power, but that is not your path in this job. Your only way to have power is by how many relationships you can build. And the problem you have to solve is how you have power with people. Yeah. And people are terrible. <laughs> so it's like people are a mess. And everybody's gonna say that the people that they're specifically supposed to organize can't be organized. There's something unique about those people that make them unorganizable. And an no organizer worth their salt would ever say that about any people. If the people aren't organized, it's because you're not organizing them. So you have to decide, is this the kind of path that you want yourself as a path to power, like a path to having influence where you are entirely dependent on how much of a collective set of relationships, how big of a base you can build. And the problem with building that base with people is definitely people. <laughs> so so, so <laughs> let's talk about the very concrete things that we do to move people, any people. But you can never say in this organization, ever say that someone can't be organized. Some group of people are so special. They're so unique. They're too rich. They're too big. They're too middle class. They're too poor. They're too black. They're too brown. They're too much immigrants. They're just refugees. They're too rural. Yeah. <laughs> like everybody, everybody's, it's too Midwestern. It's too East Coast. You know, like those, if you hear yourself saying those things, then you're actually in a place of insecurity about whether or not you can do that. And that's the thing you should be wrestling with instead of blaming the people you're supposed to be organizing. Yep. I, you know? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so. I've loved this conversation and I feel like, you know, and you and I've talked yeah. organizing and other stuff here and there, but like what I see and hear in your life is somebody that's been on a quest to understand, get right with and build power for a long time. Yeah, it's true. It's really cool. Well, thanks for doing this. You too, George. So much to take away from this conversation. What I hear in Doran's story is a constant deepening of her understanding of her own path reflecting on her experiences from new angles and coming back to those experiences that have not yet been digested. And that's what we do in organizing, help people know their story, 
Not the stories that others have written for them, but their true story. And we do this person after person, through one-on-ones, training, reflection, and through experiences that we create. And I believe becoming a really good organizer requires becoming a better human being, hungry to understand our own shit and to work with it. And we all do this in different ways, prayer, meditation, therapy, journaling, and relationship with others. I don't think it really matters how, but we need to do the work or we can only be so helpful to others in doing the same. Organizing whole institutions. Not the leader of the institution, but the whole institution. Like what becomes possible when we're able to move an entire congregation or an entire town? Within those institutions, find the organic leaders. As Doran said, many will not hold positional power, but have networks, are followed by others, and are currently untapped leaders in the fight. Doran said, my job is to organize people. My job is not to figure out if they agree with me. My job is not to figure out if they are good. My job is to organize them. And if my job is to organize new people, I absolutely need to be with the woman with the pineapple tablecloth. Because democracy should live there too. Who represents the person with a pineapple tablecloth in each of our lives? To where are each of us taking democracy that it doesn't already exist? You can learn more about the work that Doran is doing with Isaiah and Faith in Minnesota at peoplesaction.org slash nextmove. You can find Doran on Twitter at dschrantz. This podcast was produced by People's Action and the Mashup Americans. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi and Rebecca Lair. Our senior producer is Sarah Pellegrini. Our development producer is Melissa Lowe. Production manager, Shelby Sandlin. Bye now.